This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Well, look at that. It's another bonus episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. Before we get to the show, just a friendly reminder that the registration deadline for the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League... It's September 7th. It's in less than a week. If you want to join the best fantasy hockey league in the world, of course, we send out invites to all patrons of the show to find out more about becoming a patron and getting your invite. Head on over to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to a bonus episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. My name is Brian Com, and with me today is somebody whose fantasy opinion you should absolutely value. It's great to have fresh voices on the show, and that's why we have Neil Parker with us for this. Neil is a Dauber Hockey contributor. You might know him as the guy who rambles twice a week over at DauberHockey.com. He also wrote a part in the guide uh, about one-way and two-way contracts. That was really interesting. He contributes to Rotowire, and he has been gracious enough to uh, to connect with us on the phone from Nova Scotia. Welcome to the show, Neil. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's a real pleasure to jump on and talk some fantasy hockey. We're ramping up, right? It's almost September. Well, I guess it's September 1st today. It is so September. We're, we're in the we're in full swing now, draft season and everything. So it's a really good time to uh, chat some hockey. No better time for for a bonus episode to come out, and we have a full slate of topics to go over. Quick preview: We're going to talk about how Neil comes up with projections. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the interesting parts of this year's Dauber Guide. We're going to talk about using advanced stats uh, to make fantasy decisions. We're going to talk about. Jack Eichel, rookies, the Habs, defensemen, we're going to be everywhere. So stay tuned. Actually, you don't need to stay tuned because we're going to start right now. Neil, you know, when you come up with your projections and your ranking players to to head into your draft, how do you come up with your projections? Like, what's your starting point? Do you just get going with what you saw last year? What's How do you get your basic picture of what you expect from a player going into the next season? So role and career trajectory are pretty important considerations for me. Um, and just to throw it right into an example, Brian, like David Pasternak is an ideal um, topic to sort to discuss because you know everything suggests that he should take a solid step forward this season offensively uh he ranks 13th in five on five points per 60 minutes among skaters with at least 1,000 minutes played over the past two seasons I mean that's an elite uh offensive play at five on five but he's only played 101 minutes and 23 seconds of power play time so at even strength, he's great. No opportunities on the power play. Um, so without an uptick in opportunities with the man advantage, it's really impossible to project David Pasternak to take that 
offensive step forward into the 50 to 55 point range. So, you know, his career trajectory is pointing up, but his role is still a little bit murky. We don't know if he's going to get those power play opportunities. And with the signing of David back, as it sort of looks like Pashnik probably will not uh, get top unit power play time. And that's, you know, a hurdle to projecting him to really take the step forward that he shows uh, statistically at even strength, he's probably capable of uh, making that jump. So someone like Pashnik, for example, talent-wise, career trajectory is pointing straight up, but his role is limiting. So he's he's difficult to project as a 55-point player. Instead, he's probably more of a 40- to 45-point to player. Yeah, you know, when you bring up Pasternak, and I'm like, yeah, he's he's got to be on power play one is my knee-jerk reaction. But you look at that Boston Bruins depth chart, and it's, I mean, it's not terribly deep, but it's a little deeper. It's deep enough to keep Pasternak out of that spot because you've got Bergeron, Krejci, Marchand definitely taking up a spot up front. Tori Krug probably QBing the thing. And then there's one spot left for, you know, like you said, Bacchus or Pasternak or Hayes or Frank Vitrano if they really want to go hipster on us in, in designing that first <laughs> yeah, power play I, unit. I think Ryan Spooner is also in the conversation too. And he's sort of a power play specialist who um, has seen more trust or he's been given more trust by um, by Claude Julian too. So um, yeah, so I just you know that's one example of a player where and that sort of hopefully breaks down the the process when we start to think about how to project a player's points, how to project um, where they're going to fit into the lineup and things. You, you know, you you just have to consider all the encompassing factors, uh, sort it out uh, to the most likely events. And with talent winning out more times than not, um, you know, you can find your your projection. And that's why I think Pashnik will take the step forward. I think he's going to approach 50 points because his talent's there. But the full breakout might not be upon us yet just because he's a little bit buried on that depth chart. Which is unfortunate because I I think we all want to see a a free-roaming Pasternak after the the glimpses we've gotten to see. So you take role into account when you're projecting plays. Is there something, you know, like sort of in your secret sauce that, that you do also take into account on top of that that maybe we wouldn't think about maybe i haven't even thought about it uh, when when trying to figure out exactly how successful a player is going to be you know I, I like to look at the rate stats of points per 60 minutes for example their even strength play uh but also i'm really i'm pushing this narrative i'm not 100 percent sure if it's if it is actual factual yet but the trend really is that players are breaking out and having their career seasons younger than they ever were. So I'm looking at, you know, a player's peak years from age 22 to 26, whereas, you know, 10 years ago, that was more like a 26 to 30 range. I've delved into it a little bit throughout the ramblings at Dauber Hockey this summer, but ultimately I'm looking to that younger age group that that's where those breakouts are coming, uh, opposed to a player who's 27, you know, maybe he's shown a little bit of career progression, but ultimately he's probably topped out at 27 compared to a player who's 23, had a great season last year at 22. There could be more offensive growth there. Someone like Braden Shen comes to mind. Right, and there used to be, or there still is, and I think Dauber's a big proponent of the, the fourth 
year breakout. And maybe we'll get into that a little later in the show. But I, I agree. It's a good point. Like, we, it feels like we don't have to wait as long anymore. Four years seems like a really long time to expect uh, a strong player to who, who's been playing full time in a big role uh, for them to be able to come and break out. Okay, so uh, we've talked about role. We've talked about age. Uh, those are all the things that go into the projection. What What sort of thing can really derail one like we know injuries really throws off uh, how we can project a player but is there anything else that can happen in season that really derails your expectations of a player that that you try very hard to predict but but it's difficult yeah well I mean one thing for sure would just be being demoted down the lineup uh last season we saw someone like Jonathan Drouin uh, you know, he didn't just get demoted down the line. He got basically demoted right off the team, you know. So um, that's obviously a big concern that you, sometimes you just can't foresee. Um, so definitely demotions down the lineup can curb a preseason projection pretty quickly. Um, another example from last season would be Anders Lee. Uh, he was a player that I was extremely high on. Um, and it's not like he really failed to receive top six minutes and power play time, but it just wasn't consistent. And it just wasn't with the same players all the time. I wasn't necessarily concerned about him having to stick with John Tavares to succeed, but he was sort of up and down all over the lineup. And Ryan Strom was another example. Um, who just, you know, New York just didn't provide the consistent lineup, the consistent setting for these younger players to break out as we expected. Um, Jack Capuano is pretty notorious for tinkering with his lines. So um, having a little bit of ability to handicap the coaching situation uh, shouldn't, it just shouldn't be ignored. Um, And because we can't get into the brain of these coaches, um, you know, you're leaving yourself susceptible because ultimately they're the ones that are constructing the lines. They're the ones that are um, putting together the power play units. We can say that David Pasternak should be on the number one power play unit, but if Claude Julien doesn't disagree, there's nothing we can do about that. Um, And one situation that definitely from last season that highlights this better than any, I would have to think, was Brandon Saad not receiving power play time at points last year at the Blue Jackets. I mean, it's absurd that he didn't, but John Tortorella is a bad coach, and the fantasy upside of Columbus players is lower and less stable because he is the coach of the team. You know, you're not going to alter your projections significantly because of those types of unknowns, but, you know, you want to consider your range of outcomes to be greater than when you sort of have a player who's locked into their role um, and is sort of locked into their point of their career where they've sort of established themselves. So um, I think one of the greatest examples right now is, is Jonathan Taves, for example, right? I mean, he is perennially flirting with 30 goals. He's probably going to put 55 points up every year going forward. He's no longer the point-per-game threat, but he's locked into that number one power play unit, um, which is very good. And, you know, he's could potentially jump up to 65 points, but, you know, we can put him at 55 points for sure with close to 30 goals and feel very secure that the range of outcomes isn't that vast for him, whereas someone like who's almost similarly as, you know, could put up similar numbers like Ryan Strom, for example, we just talked about. I mean, you know, he's up and down the lineup. We don't know if he's going to play third line. We don't know if he's going to play second unit power play. I mean, he's got the talent to approach 25 goals, approach 55 assists, or sorry, 55 points like Jonathan Taze, but his range of outcomes is just so great because 
he doesn't have that fixed role. So definitely demotions up and down the lineup um, are the biggest thing that can derail your your projection. Right, and the, of course the best defense for that is to stay right on top of things all season long. Is is I mean I don't need to shelf for your writing, but you can find that out from uh, from Neil through the season and from us, of course. Um, since you mentioned Brandon Saad, it, it's worth noting finished fourth in Columbus in power play minutes, which is like, you know, I feel like I could walk up to several random hockey fans and ask them to try and name four players on Columbus, and they couldn't quite do it. And actually, he's like a minute ahead only of Brandon Dubinsky, and he played three more games. So uh, some interesting power play deployment. We'll see if that changes in Columbus this year. Neil, let's move on to chatting a little bit about this year's guide, which, of course, has all of Dauber's projections in it. Uh, but not just that. What part of it, when you were flipping through it, is there any part aside from the projections that, you know, you think somebody who's really into fantasy hockey who hasn't checked it out yet might be interested in? Yeah, for sure. So in one of my summer ramblings, um, when the guide was first released, I tossed out three of the features that I really thought were selling points, uh, three solid reasons to grab the guide. Um, They were the points per 60 minute charts for each team. Um, So you've got the list of the players, where they ranked on the team, where they ranked in the league and points per 60 minutes. Uh, Dauber's personal notes on each team's possession and usage tendencies. And then also uh, there's an article with schedule analysis by Terry um, Kampkin. And just quickly going into each, uh, very helpful in my opinion. I, you know, I, I learned a lot tracking them, going through them. But with the per 60 minute statistics, um, they're just sort of helpful to figure out how a player who might be, you know, playing lesser minutes who projects to take a larger role on this coming season um, how those numbers could translate so uh, Mike Hoffman is a really great example because we saw his career trajectory Um, he's an elite five-on-five scorer Uh, his per 60 minutes are great and we've seen him sort of break out uh, alongside being given a larger role Uh, on the flip side Someone like Tobias Ryder uh, for Arizona, he ranked 234th in the league in points per 60 minutes last season. So, uh, you know, it it might be one of the reasons Arizona isn't uh, rushing out the door to try to offer him a million dollars or millions of dollars in in a new contract. And while he's a fine real world player, um, you know, when you rank 234th in the league in points per 60 minutes, you're probably not a desired fantasy asset and likely his career trajectory is going to stagnate here soon as a you know a 38 point uh per season player um if he even stays in the league right (laughs) you know the other just quick for you know quick notes about the team context where dauber sort of analyzed possession and and usage um a great example was mike fisher and i would say his fantasy value is going to plummet this season because not only is he old and pretty injury prone, but also uh, Eric Nystrom and Paul Gustad are no longer with the Predators, which means Fisher will probably be deployed uh, in more defensive situations to take defensive faceoffs. So, you know, starting more shifts in the defensive zone certainly is a negative for your fantasy value. Um, someone like Nikita Nestorov for Tampa Bay, he played extremely sheltered minutes with the Lightning 
but he wasn't able to really drive possession. He still couldn't, you know, produce a strong Corsi 4 percentage. So that's a concern for his uh, fantasy value going forward. On the flip side, Tivo Teravainen started 57% of his shifts in the defensive zone last year. So those are just three examples um, that I pulled from Daubert's usage notes uh, for each team, and, and they're great. And then quickly, just to uh, hat tip the third article, uh, Terry Campton's schedule is, you know, I mean, we know that this is a turnover league. Uh, Everything can flip 15 times uh, within the course of a season, but at the end of the day, the schedule isn't changing. The schedule's locked in stone. It might be the only thing in the league that doesn't change. So if, you know, last year taught us anything, it's that the peaks and valleys of each team, um, you know, are huge. But schedule doesn't change so you know back-to-back games um they're highlighted teams that play on the lighter scheduled nights more frequently are highlighted so it's just a great way to um you know help assemble your team and helpful while managing your team throughout the season for sure absolutely you know i i've also i'm I'm hearing you say uh rate stats a lot and you're talking about points per 16 even strength scoring which is something we talk a ton about on the show. So it sounds to me like you are using some advanced stats, some of the newer stats uh, to help make decisions for your fantasy team. Uh, how do you how much weight do you give them because at the end of the day, right, it is counting stats and I, it might sound like heresy coming from me. This is more of like an Elon type question, <laughs> but I, I want to I want to challenge you so you so I get some backup on this thing. Yeah, um so with advanced stats, I mean I guess let me spin it this way for you, Brian. I mean, for the past two seasons, I've created dollar values um, for DraftKings and FanDuel that incorporate advanced statistics into the formula to help calculate the salary. So it gives me a rankings, essentially, right? You know, the highest salary guys, supposedly the best. And, you know, so I tweak them and, and consistently tweak them. But those statistics that I use, I use PDO, high danger scoring chances, Corsi 4 percentage, um, goals, assists, points per 60 minutes. And, and they're all weighed within the formula that also uses base statistics like goals, assists, and points, power play points, shots, etc. Um, so, you know, advanced statistics are absolutely part of the equation for evaluating players for me, but they're not the only lens that you should view any particular player under. Um, you know, in coin flip decisions, it might be fair to look at a player who has 13 shots over his past three games and sits with a 94 PDO for the month, and you say, well, his you know, his puck luck's due for correction here. Um, But in that example, you're also looking at the fact that he's got 13 shots over his past three games, right? So when all the statistics align, I think that's when you, you know, you really have a strong case to to make um, an evaluation on the player. But also, I watch a lot of hockey. Um, (laughs) So, you know, my eyes tell me a lot too. So, you know, it's... Statistics are are one way to evaluate players. Uh, Relying solely on what you see on the ice is another way. And I try to almost like a Venn diagram, you know, when when everything meets in the middle, then I know uh, that I can trust what my eyes see, what the stats are telling me, what the matchups might lie. You know, for example, I might look at a struggling team 
with a poor Corsi 4 percentage of, you know, it's like 42.5 over the past 10 games and view that as a favorable matchup, maybe to shift a player into my lineup or out of my lineup um, based on that. But, you know, you're you're never going to do something like that uh, with a talented player. You know, you're not going to bench Wayne Simmons for Jesper Fast because Fast has a 92 PDO and is playing Colorado with a 43.2 Corsi 4 percentage, you know. So, you know, talent trumps and talent wins out. But, you know, you definitely want to just be aware of all the information that's out there because your competition is probably going to be using it to a certain degree. And, you know, what you just want to keep up with the joneses on that side right so let's put that knowledge to use and and i agree with a lot of what you said it's it's not just one or the other it can't be that way you're going to gain the most info from looking at both so from looking at both you know we've seen a lot of projections come out this year already who are you seeing in your opinion that's getting let's say some favorable treatment in projections let's say they're getting ranked too high there's no way that they're going to score as many points as a lot of people expect they're going to i'm going to pick on dauber's projections a little bit just because we've we've talked about it you know he's incredibly conservative with his projections it's an approach that i that i share um there have only been 54 70 point seasons in the past three years and 17 80 point seasons scoring is down so the majority of players are scoring between 45 and 60 points that are fantasy relevant. So we got to keep that in mind when we're projecting, when we're looking at projections, when we're thinking critically about players. So, you know, I don't have a whole lot of instances where I see that he's aggressively projected a player too high. But uh, there's a couple that stick out. Um, one is definitely Artemi Panarin. Uh, everyone's fantasy darling from last season, the league winner. Um, and Dauber has him projected for 74 points. And I think that's a it's a high-end projection. And just one little nugget to share about Panarin's rookie season was he finished with 13 points through five April games. So, I mean, that's just, you know, taking you from being a 60-point scorer and all of a sudden you're finished at, you know, 77 points for last season. So if you cut that towards stretch in half and Panarin sits with a 70 or 71 points, I think that's the ceiling we should view him at entering his sophomore season. So Chicago's power play also climbed from 19th ranked 17.6% two years ago to the second ranked 22.6% last season. So with some negative regression on the power play, a little bit of negative regression in Panarin himself, I think you see his absolute ceiling in that 70 to 71 72 point range with a more realistic projection at about 65 points there's a recency bias too right so at the end of the year if a guy finishes strong or really helps you at the end that, that probably carries over into how you feel about him uh, how about someone on the other end of things who might be coming in too low who you think is worth drafting a little bit ahead of where you've seen the projections rank them louis erickson and this is totally not my style to grab a 30 year old guy and and uh, pump his tires but um dauber's going to project for 53 points uh which is i feel like a floor projection uh barring injury of course and if we remember back from 2008 
the 2009 season all the way through 2011-2012 campaign, Erickson scored 118 goals, 278 points, over 325 games. And that's a that was high-end production. 11th in goals during that span, 21st in points during that span. Um, and so he's older now. But last season, he did prove that he can still move the needle offensively. And playing with Henrik and Daniel Sedin, it's a pretty ideal landing spot. So... You know, the upside of another 30-goal, 60-point season from him is very well within reach. I believe the Canucks are going to be terrible, but I still think someone's going to score, and it's a nice fit with Henrik and Daniel Sedin. So I, I think Erickson can definitely approach 30 goals and definitely approach 60 points again. Is the danger there, though, for Erickson to get that riding verbata treatment and get booted off the top line every so often and end up, you know, with Brandon Sutter, Bo Horvat instead? Brandon Sutter would be bad. But actually, like, I didn't realize just how good Bo Horvat was in the second half last year. So if that were the case, I could see those two clicking enough that it would maintain Erickson's um, fantasy upside and you know he could still approach that floor of 53 points obviously I'm talking more ceiling with the fact that he is going to lock in with Henrik and Daniel Sedin but I think Bo Horvat showed in the second half last season that he's a he's a scorer and he's going to be a solid player it's just going to be a couple years before he's got the supporting cast to really be a fantasy mainstay but maybe with Louis Erickson if that were the case those two would be able to produce uh, enough to maintain Erickson's um, value so just to kind of sum that all up ideal Henrik and Daniel okay with Bo Horvat disastrous with Brandon Sutter. <laughs> right, and it's a good point you make about Bo Horvat. He did finish the season scoring above a half point per game pace by a little bit, essentially on a 50-point pace over his last 20 or so games, which really, I mean, you have to give bonus points because he did it as a member of the second line on the Vancouver Canucks, and things aren't going to get any easier for him this year. In fact, Bo Horvat owners are probably hoping that Louis Erickson does get kicked off the first line and ends up on the second. Let's talk about a few more specific players that sort of jumped out at me in the projections I've seen in Dauber's guide. So Dauber's got Jack Eichel way up there. He's got him finishing amongst the top scorers in the league, sandwiched between Tyler Sagan and Kopitar and Giroux, going from 56 points last year all the way up to 72 points this year. That's a, that's a big jump from rookie to sophomore. Do you, do you see the same signs that I, I imagine Dauber seeing that he's ready to break out in this big a way. Well, just hang with me for a second here, Brian, as I kind of go through this, because I, I sort of envision Jack Eichel's career similar to the to the Beatles. And, okay. uh, you know, like we, we've seen his early work here. We know there's a lot ahead, but... I view this season as like his rubber sole season. It's the first step into really moving the needle, you know? Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, those breakthroughs are coming. Uh, we see the makings of a great season for Eichel, just like we saw the makings of revolutionizing popular music with Rubber Soul, right? But it was Revolver and Peppers where it really all came together. So, you know, I see Eichel going to have a solid season, if not Monster. I mean, the potential is definitely there for him to have that 72-point season. But we're not going to see his best in 2016-2017. There's nothing wrong with Rubber Soul, you know, but we just don't want to pay for Revolver yet. 
and the price tag might just be a little too high for Jack Eichel this season. I saw on Yahoo he's ranked as the 14th center, I believe. Um, so 65 points for me is a really safe expectation. I think that's obtainable. I think that's within reach. But 70, eee, that's it's steep. So I, I think that's one of the spots where the typically conservative uh, Daryl Dobbs was very aggressive with his with his projection. You know, I'm one of the guys that was hoping for 60 points out of him last year. It didn't happen, and, and I do think, I'm with you, I think that's a, a pretty huge jump. I think 65 points would be a really successful season. And remember, you know, everyone's so high on Buffalo, and, you know, for good reason. They, they definitely look a lot more filled out than they used to be, but it's kind of all relative. Like, if you look at the second line, Right now, even after adding Okposo, uh, you know, Eichel could end up, say, with Tyler Ennis and Sam Reinhardt, who are both quality players. And Ennis, of course, is the guy we've been waiting forever for a breakout from. And Sam Reinhardt is another guy on the up and up. But at the end of the day, is that really enough to pick up 70 plus points with as a sophomore? Like, I feel like Eichel is probably capable of driving his own offense someday. I just don't know if it's going to happen just at this moment with those guys. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a few moving pieces here that we need to see sort of um, come into formation before we really have a full picture of what's going to happen with Buffalo. And Evander Kane's a big part of that, too. Um, I'm a believer in Sam Reinhardt. He was excellent um, in creating and generating high danger scoring chances last season uh led the sabers in goals in the second half so i do feel like eichel and reinhardt are a nice pair that if they find a third winger on their on their line that those two can generate enough goals i don't have a lot of faith in tyler ennis mainly because of his health and i think you're absolutely right power play is going to be the key i feel for jack eichel taking that next step and he showed some promise in that area last year so if he can approach 25 to 30 power play points, which isn't an outlandish number, uh, that'll be the big key for him um, really taking that breakout towards 70 points. But it's got to happen on the power play, I think. For sure. And speaking of a guy who I, I hoped would get 60 points last year, Dauber's got two rookies beating 60 points this year. And and just for context, I, I feel like we all know their names, so I, I skipped right over it. But Austin Matthews and Patrick Liney are, are the two guys, of course. And for context, if you look at the last five seasons, there have only been six NHL rookies to crack 60 points in their rookie season. Artemi Panarin was one of them last year. And if you look at them, like their ages are 24, 22, 21, 20. In fact, the last one under 20 was Nathan McKinnon back in 2013, 14. And before that, it was Jeff Skinner way back in 2010, 11. So now we have two rookies projected to crack 60 points. Let's start with Austin Matthews. He's actually slated to lead in Dauber's rankings, all Toronto scorers. And my, my initial question is, is there enough depth in that lineup for Austin Matthews to manage 60 plus points as a rookie. I think the biggest thing with when you bring up the depth about Toronto is that he's going to be eased in. Nazem Kadri, you know, he sort of stepped up in that number one center, shutdown center, playing against the t- other team's top players center last year under Mike Babcock. His confidence soared in his real world abilities didn't exactly generate into huge statistical growth for Nazem Kadri, but he's now capable to be deployed in that role of playing against the other team's best players. Then you also have Tyler Bozak who can slot in and play, you know, 
secondary minutes behind Kadri uh, until Austin Matthews is ready to take that step. Um, whether it's William Nylander, whether it's Mitch Marner, whether it's James Van Riensdyk, um, I think there's uh, there's going to come a time next season when all of a sudden it's like the light bulb moment where we say, oh my goodness, Austin Matthews is for real. Austin Matthews is a legitimate number one center and Toronto opens the floodgates for him and plays him with Nylander, Marner, um, or Van Riemsdyk, you know, whoever, whoever it takes. But he is the number one center on the team in offensive situations. And once that happens, he should be uh, able to, you know, hit 25 goals, 60 points for the season. He beat Patrick Kane's under-18 U.S. National Development Team Program scoring record with 116 points, right? You know, he's clearly an excellent scorer, but I think he's going to have that 200-foot game that they sort of discuss in the in the Anzi Kopitar mold, right? So definitely think the sky's the limit for Austin Matthews. It just might not come all at once. Um, so with that being said, if he's utilized in primary offensive situations against the weaker opponents compared to Kadri and Bozak to start, he, he could just hit the ground running. Yeah, and I'm not, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm so glad you mentioned Marner and Nylander in, in the same part. If you had to rank the three of them in terms of who you would draft first... How would you do it? As a Leafs fan, I might just take them one, two, three in my draft. <laughs> yeah, that, that would I'm be so, a very I'm Leafs so fan eager. fantasy so move. <laughs> um, That's like the t- days that Dion Phaneuf was a top 10 pick right away <laughs> once he was a, a member of the Leafs. <laughs> yeah, we're, we get bullish sometimes. Um, I'm not worried about Marner like being sent to junior. There's nothing left for him to prove. I am a little concerned about the offseason buzz that perhaps he's not in the best shape. Nylander showed last year that he is quite capable of moving the needle offensively. I think he scored 10 points in his last 11 games to finish last season. Uh, Don't quote me on that one. But all said and done, I would rank Nylander second just because he has the experience. He's got three years of professional hockey under his belt. He went through the rigors of a full season last year. That being said, if Marner sets up in a power play type specialist role where he's utilized just in highly offensive situations, opportunities, uh, Marner should be able to get to 50 points. I think Nylander gets to 50 points too. So I think you're looking at uh, quite a nice young core ready to take the league on fire, similar to the way that the Chicago Blackhawks did back when uh, Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane um, were first entering the league. Yeah, it's been a while since I think a team has had three rookies worth watching going into a season, especially with that team being the Toronto Maple Leafs, but I, I don't mean to be unkind it's fine. in that comment it's fine. at all. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Role keeps being such a huge factor into you know a lot of your answers, and rightfully so. So let's talk about Patrick Liney now, because he's in a situation where a role is not necessarily available. Like, they have Brian Little, Mark Shifley, Nick Ehlers is still coming up, Blake Wheeler, you know, you throw in Matthew Perot and Drew Stafford in depth roles too. And where does that leave Patrick Liney as somebody who, well, Dauber's hoping can hit 60? Yeah, and I think he can too. And actually, if I were going between Matthews and Patrick Liney, I would take Liney first. I believe that he's going to score the most goals um, as a rookie. Uh, I believe he's going to hit 30. I think he's going to hit the 60 points. And he just... Just all the momentum, right? I mean, he just had a phenomenal. He had a he had a year for the ages um, in 2015, 2016. Um, 
finish Elite League MVP in the playoffs, MVP of the World Championships. Um, you know, he just gained so much momentum and his sh- shooter's mentality, opportunistic vision, lethal shooting arsenal. Um, he's Those are all second to none among rookies. And he could prove to be one of the best goal scorers in the league very quickly. Uh, he could set up as a trigger man on that number one power play. I think they're definitely going to let him loose in the top six there's no reason not to so I really feel like the the sky's the limit offensively for him and because Winnipeg does have a number of moving pieces like a Matthew Perot like a Drew Stafford who are capable of moving up and down the lineup it really allows them to find something that works for Patrick Line, which maybe it's playing with Brian Little on the second line because I really think that the Wheeler uh, Shifley and Ehlers combo has to stay together after they were the third best line in the league among, you know, whatever it was, goals goals for percentage or goals per 60. I mean, they were unbelievable. So they're definitely, they should stay together. But Line A then can slide into that, again, a secondary scoring role. And maybe he emerges as the go-to scorer on the power play and, and does plenty of damage on at even strength too. So definitely really bullish. Yeah, and we have the case study last year of Nick Ehlers and something to watch for. You know, you mentioned role all the time. Nick Ehlers was on like a crazy scoring pace when he was in the top six and especially on the top line and fell off completely when he was out of that. So obviously Liney is probably going to need to be in that role to succeed himself. So if you're wavering on him, I, I don't know how much insight you might get from say World Cup play or, or preseason line combo but that's definitely something to keep in mind and watch early uh, to see where he might slot in uh, on a regular basis. Now, we get a lot of questions, and I'm wondering, Neil, if you have any insight into Liney's peripherals, because a lot of people want to know, you know, that he's a big hitter, he likes to throw his body around, and of course, that makes him very valuable in a league that has several categories other than scoring and gives him, like, Maybe the potential for, I don't want to go too far, but Ovechkin-like value. Do you have any thoughts on whether peripherals or his peripherals might be able to carry over from his junior play into the NHL? Yeah, I mean, definitely I would look at his uh, shot volume should translate for sure. Uh, As far as like penalty minutes and body checks and that stuff go, um, you know, maybe. uh, Definitely the comparisons to Ovechkin have been thrown around a lot. I wouldn't call him Ovechkin yet. Who did I compare him to? Um, Maybe like a Vladimir Tarasenko type shooter. I don't have a whole lot of insight on it, Brian. I mean, he'll probably throw his body around enough to to prove that he can you know be a physical force early on in his career kind of you know put to rest any doubts that he's you know um, not physically ready to be in the league but I wouldn't expect him to suddenly jump out and lead the team in hits or anything if he does I would consider it a bonus and with that being said too I mean you're not drafting him for his body checks or his penalty minutes you're drafting him because he should be one of the best scorers in the league 30 goal scores are just not that prevalent anymore and he definitely is someone who can approach 30 goals top 30 goals i like that perspective let's not get overly greedy and hope that he can get these hits to what you're getting is a super young incredibly uh um talented hmm. Talented. Let's go with talented (laughs) score. The word I was looking for had something to do with potential, but I think I got too far in the sentence to use it. All right. So, Liney over Matthews for the Calder? Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, sure. 
Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm, I'm holding you to that. I never, I never thought about it that way about like being a an, an award. But I think if if it's the fantasy Calder winner, if it's the fantasy rookie of the year, it's definitely line A. How about that? That sounds uh, like a very good way to characterize it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's do uh, let's do a bit of a lightning round of sorts. We've got mm-hmm. just a handful of players left to go over. Let's just do a little bit on each one, and then uh, then we'll call it an interview. Yeah. Let's start in Winnipeg. Actually, let's stay in Winnipeg. Speaking of peripherals, you know, Dustin Bufflin used to be a guy or considered a guy, and is still considered a guy. I don't know why I said used to be, who can put up big points from the blue line, gets tons of power play time, and also racks up peripherals and hits and blocks. The thing is that he's outside the top 10 in terms of points. And I'm just wondering, how high would you grab him? How high do you rank those peripherals? If your league counts hits and blocks, does that really push him up into the top 10 or even top 5? There was a time where he was a no-questions-asked top 5 pick. I'm wondering if those days are over, especially as we're heading into what would be expected to be his decline. No, for me, I think you can definitely bill him as a top three defenseman. Brett Burns, your boy Eric Carlson, and Dustin Bufflin, because of his cross-category production, for me, are still, there's your top three. No questions asked. If your league includes hits, penalty minutes, he definitely moves the needle with shots. Over the past three years, I believe it's 25 points in 75 75 penalty minutes. Uh, those benchmarks, Bufflin and Dion Phaneuf are the only two to hit them in all three seasons. So he's definitely in a class of his own uh, of what he can bring statistically. Okay, so Bufflin still maintains his, his super strong fantasy presence in your opinion. How about let's move to Calgary quickly. Who is the first defenseman you take on the Calgary Flames? And I'm going to throw this at you before you give me your answer. Dougie Hamilton, post-All-Star break, 58-point pace, 24 points in 34 games. Who would you take as your first Calgary Flame defenseman? I think it's still Mark Giordano just because, again, he's a great cross-category producer. Um, He's still moving the needle uh definitely like what we saw from hamilton at the end of the season like you just mentioned uh looks to be sort of like a passing of the torch but it's not going to be fully passed as long as giordano's there playing well and at you know whatever he is 6.8 million or you know a six million dollar contract um and tj brody's still there too and so tj brody and um giordano just have formed a really solid top unit um and they play really well and brody does so much that goes unnoticed statistically but helps the real the team um they're a good duo they're gonna see lots of minutes and until hamilton can play more minutes than giordano uh especially on the power play might not be able to leapfrog him uh i don't think it's far off though i think we might be i i think i might be singing a different tune next season though yeah it feels like the time is nigh for that i i I agree i i don't know when exactly that changing of the guard is gonna happen you've got a new coach in calgary which adds another little wrinkle either there's no loyalty to the former guy or maybe there remains loyalty to keep status quo uh let's move on to montreal you've got brandon gallagher who had a career-high 47 points, although in the lockout-shortened season, he was on pace for 52. Last year, however, he was on pace for 61. Which number better represents Brandon Gallagher? 61 points 
or let's let's call it between 47 and 52, 50 points. Yeah, I think he's definitely right in the middle. I think that breakout season we saw last year was unfortunately cut short by injuries. Gallagher only played the 53 games, and it limited him to you know being in the 40-point range for a third consecutive season. You mentioned the 82-game pace of 30 goals, 62 points. So for me, 25 goals and you know somewhere in the range of 50 points again this season is a solid floor thing about Gallagher and we were just kind of talking about the supporting statistics is that he definitely does tip the scales across you know your hits your block shots your penalty minutes your shots you know he's he definitely uh, stuffs the supporting category so he's definitely got excellent value in rotisserie leagues Uh, plus he's entering his age 24 season so after showing signs of breaking out the past couple seasons there's really a lot to like about him going forward into his offensive prime so I definitely think that they're you know you're seeing is probably a 60-point ceiling. Alexander Radulov joining should cut into some of his offensive upside, but he's still a good enough talent to be able to score 25 goals and, and post, let's say, 55 points. Where do you put Radulov compared to Gallagher ahead, behind, just about the same? Uh, I put him ahead. There's 5.75 million reasons why Alexander Radulov <laughs> is, is going to have um, a good season. He's not going to fall victim to benchings and press box visits in the way someone like Alexander Semen did two years ago. Um, this was a calculated risk for Montreal, and now they boast one of the best one-two goal-scoring punches in the league with Pacioretty and Radulov. And if we've seen what was successful this past spring in the playoffs it was teams that had scoring depth and now with Radulov with Pacioretty uh, with an up-and-coming Alex Galchenyuk you've got Gallagher um, you've got a cast of young forwards that are sort of lurking too Andrew Shaw helps uh, so there's a really a lot to like about the Montreal Canadiens I think Radulov was sort of a mercenary that kind of put them over the top I think he can approach 35 goals I would say 30 goals is a good benchmark and I think he can definitely get up to 65 points 5.75 million reasons for Alexander Radulov to be given an opportunity you know Semin had 1.1 million reasons. I felt yeah. like that was convincing enough, but I, I suppose uh, the gap and the amount that Radulov has really trumps that. So yeah. anybody burned by Semin should feel more comfortable according to uh, to the commitment to, of, of Mr. Bergevin over in Montreal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's do two more to close out the show. Let's, uh, let's take a quick stop into the crease. You've got Connor Hellebuck who led all goalies and even strength save percentage last year, even after, like, he fell off towards the end of his NHL stay. He was on fire at the start, really sort of conked out towards the end. I I kind of chalk that up to rest issues. He was playing, like, night in, night out as a rookie goaltender. Did he catch lightning in a bottle for that really hot run, or can he do that on a consistent basis? Maybe not lead all goalies and even strength save percentage, but be in the top five Maybe even top 10 would be good enough. Yeah, I definitely think he can take a run at being top 10 save percentage. I don't necessarily know if it's going to happen, but I definitely think that he's easily a top 20 talent. You're going to see Connor Hellebuck emerge as the number one goalie in Winnipeg at some point this season, and Paul Maurice should sort of follow that 
that talent mark him down nightly as his number one starter or else Paul Maurice might not have a job anymore because, you know, Winnipeg should be able to make a run at the playoffs. They definitely would have playoff aspirations and running out Andre Pavlik or, geez, I can't even think of the other guy's name, Michael Hutchinson. Michael Hutchinson, yeah. I can't blame you. No, well, I, at one point he showed some flashes, but, um, you know, just to kind of recircle back to the, the start to the question, when we've seen a talent produce, um, we believe in the talent, we've seen it happen. Once you've shown it, it's always going to you know, be potentially there again for a player who's so young, for a player who's just entering the league. Uh, he probably had some trouble behind an injury-depleted Winnipeg team in a very tough division. Second trip around the party, he might have a little more fun. So I definitely think he's going to be able to present one of the biggest returns on investment during your fantasy draft if you can grab him as even a number three goalie you're going to be looking at a guy that you can reliably start more times than not yeah and let's hope like you said Palmeris has a lot of imperative or motivation to start Hellebuck if he's looking after his job you don't want the better goalie sitting on the bench for a large part of the season I still it's happened for so long that Pavlik continues to be the number one that I'm still like so concerned there's this voice in the back of my head saying it's not gonna happen the way you want it to but hopefully Hellebuck gets a chance maybe to make a name for himself in the World Cup and makes it impossible to say no to starting him on opening night good point you know I I said one more player after this but I just want to play a very quick game called who starts who finishes with you there's two goalie situations that we get a ton of questions about I want to get your take. Just two names. In Pittsburgh, who starts the season and who finishes? I think they're going to see quite a bit of timeshare, and it's going to be a 1A, 1B for most of the year. It's pretty tough to write off what Marc-Andre Fleur's done throughout his whole career in Pittsburgh. So I definitely don't think they're just going to cast him aside. But then at the same time, it's pretty tough to just sit the number one goalie who just won you the Stanley Cup. So I definitely think there's a timeshare there. They'll probably just ride the hot hand. Geez, that's a tough question. I think they're both fantasy assets that you want to acquire because Pittsburgh's not going away. They're a good team. Yeah, uh, gun to my head, I'd say that Flurry starts and Murray finishes, I guess. It's a really, really tough one. I feel a little bad putting you on the spot That's like okay. that, but it's it's a it's a it's a super tough question. Honestly, my opinion changes on it every day. How about is this one any easier in Colorado? Who starts, who finishes? Unless something happened, there's a goalie there that I'm not sure about. Like we're still talking about Varlamov and Pickard, right? Yeah, I mean our working theory has mm-hmm. been that Patrick was guy was Semyon Varlamov. Even though when Pickard came in to spell Varlamov during injuries, which do crop up fairly frequently with Varlamov, uh, Pickard came in and, and did his job very well. So maybe with a new coach coming in, breaking things wide open again and making some competition for that number one spot, does Pickard have what it takes to maybe start the season or finish it? I don't think he's going to start just because contract-wise Varlamov's locked up, but... One of the reasons that Varlamov suffered all of these injuries, in my opinion, is because Patrick Wall was an idiot and started him like 20 games in a <laughs> row, right? Like, he'd get injured, he'd be kind of nagging groin injury or something, he'd play well for three or four games, and the next thing you know, he's starting his 21st consecutive game. 
there was definitely some workload issues that have contributed to Varlamov's uh, health issues. You know, I think Pickard's shown well, so maybe they push for more of a timeshare. Varlamov's a starter. He's going to have to lose that job. And a new coaching regime should help Colorado become a better Corsi 4 team. They were just awful in their possession statistics. So I don't think Pickard's going to take, I think it's a Varlamov answer, but Pickard could prove to be, you know, a valuable backup to have on your bench and spot start and favorable matchups when he gets the call. Like you say, he's proven that he's capable of handling the load when, when given the opportunity and, and maybe he's more of a daily fantasy hockey play. You know what I mean? Yeah. I actually really like that take. It feels like Varlamov is the guy there. He's the guy with the contract he is the number one as of now, so he probably starts the season, and maybe he's kept in better shape by being spelled more often by Pickard, and he has a better team playing in front of him, so maybe there's less danger for him to, you know, collapse or, or have a few bad games and open that window for Pickard. It's, it's a, it, that's a path we haven't really gone down, but I, I really appreciate that, that line of thinking on it. All right, let's finish it up. Last question. Yahoo just released their rankings a couple days ago. Eric Carlson ranked 18th overall by Yahoo this year. Take no cues from my voice about how I feel about that. (laughs) Standard league, standard category, standard rosters. Where do you draft Eric Carlson? 18th? No, I mean, there's a little bit of a movement to start to target these high-end defensemen who can produce offensive numbers similar to forwards. Um, Carlson's one. Burns is another. P.K. Subban could be one who uh, who really moves the needle offensively this year. So you can actually select an elite defenseman like Eric Carlson in the first round and still assemble an excellent roster. Myself personally, I'm unlikely to target Carlson in the first round because um, I prefer goal scoring wingers with my first round pick and I like to address goaltending early if needed without you know losing too much offensive punch in the process. So I usually look for upside candidates and values at defense throughout the draft in the middle rounds. But you can select Eric Carlson first overall and still build a formidable team and uh, I saw it done today. One of my former colleagues and buddy, Eston McLaren, tweeted out a roster where he, I believe, Weber Subban is his first two picks and still had a nice forward group just as a test to see how your your roster looks. So you definitely can grab Carlson first overall, and I don't think he should last outside of the first round. If I started to see him at the end of the first round and I was depending on who my targets are and the landscape of the draft. I, I might consider him with a late first round pick, but he definitely is a viable option right from get go. I'm glad you said that. So I don't have to scrap this whole interview <laughs> due to credibility issues. Phew. Uh, this 56 and a half minutes was definitely worth it. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, I got two more players I can talk about if you want. Sure. Why, why don't you let us know uh, who they are and what you have to say about sure. it? Well, so when we were kind of talking about some guys that Dauber had maybe that I thought were a little higher and a little low, um, it's really tough to to go through his projections and find guys that are sort of off. But uh, Ryan Suter is a guy that he's got projected for 48 points. And I sort of see that as a little bit too high. Um, you know, Suter averaged 40.5 points through his first two seasons with Minnesota. And with Matthew Dumba and Jared Spurgeon and sort of a younger group of defensemen, in the mix around him and a new coach, I could see some of his minutes and his power play minutes cut a little bit, 
there's potential for that. Um, and also with his big season last year, he exploded out of the gate with 20 points through his first 22 games. So uh, he scored 31 points over his final 60. So really, you know, his 51 points was really inflated by that hot start. So, you know, I could just see him reverting back to the 45-point range that he, or 40-point range that he posted through his first two seasons with Minnesota. And then another player that I thought Dauber had a little too low is James Neal. Uh, so James Neal, Dauber had projected a 49 points. And there's definitely no real threat of Neal morphing back into that point-per-game player that he was during his prime years with Pittsburgh but he's coming off a 31 goal 58 point season so he could still drop a few points and top the 49 that Dauber has projected but also we're all I think everyone I I hope everyone's projecting just a monster season for Ryan Johansson so with James Neal being Ryan Johansson's trigger man um, it's hard to view Johansson taking a huge step forward or or posting a strong season and Neil not sort of caddying off that a little bit. So uh, just a couple statistics like James Neal tied for the 30th worst shooting percentage on the power play among fours with 100 power play minutes last year, but he was the 31st best shooting percentage at five on five among skaters with at least a thousand minutes. So even if there's a slight decline in his even strength production, I think you're definitely going to see it mitigated by his power play results. And I just really feel like James Neal's a pretty good bet to get back to a 30 goal, 50 point season versus you know the 49 points that that Dauber had him projected at so didn't want to waste those good notes right for sure I'm, <laughs> I'm with you I'm with you on them in Minnesota to me it's the curiosity is with Bruce Boudreaux behind the bench you know we saw in Anaheim him cycle between Vatnin, Lindholm, Fowler like if you wanted to pick up even Shea Theodore if you wanted to pick up the guy who's going to play on a top unit in Anaheim you never knew who that was. And, you know, especially if you had one of them and you wanted to work out a trade, it was very difficult to get a handle on their value. I think the Dumba effect could be very real in Minnesota. He's someone that I'm, I'm curious to see if he gets to take on a bigger role. Spurgeon, I feel like maybe he's the fowler of the group who, you know, can come up and get a couple points here and there. But I, I feel like we've been waiting for him to break out a couple years already and we might be, be seeing already about what we can expect to get. Uh, interesting thoughts also for James Neal. I- I'm with you on that. On the last episode, I talked about how I think Ryan Johansson this year is more of a lock for 70 points going into this season than he was for 70 points going into last season. And that seems to be the inverse of what I've seen put out there uh, often. But my own thinking is that this is an amazing situation for him and for whoever plays with him. And James Neal is actually probably going to be my aces in the hole, although not anymore now that I'm mentioning it (laughs) on the air. Uh, But definitely a guy who I think in our mock auction draft, he went for incredibly low price. And I feel like as a a top six guy in Nashville is pretty well set at the moment. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing your thoughts on both those guys. Is is there anybody else before I close this off? Well, I mean, talking about Ryan Johansson and just spill the beans on him like I completely agree with you on that point Uh, just 17 players have recorded 60 points in each of the past three seasons Johansson's the youngest of that group Uh, twice with Columbus you know he pulled up 
the fantasy production of guys like Nick Foligno, Boone Jenner, Cam Atkinson, Scott Hartnell, fine players, fine players, but they're not in the realm of a Philip Forsberg and James Neal and Roman Yossi and P.K. Subban. And so I agree, it's a great situation. His role, he's a number one pivot on that team for sure. Um, And even if he just produces at the same pace as he did last year after joining Nashville, he scored at a 66.4 point pace per 82 games after, you know, the trade. Oftentimes players struggle to produce once they switch teams. And and so with all that out of the way, he's had a full off season. I, I see Ryan Johansson as a potential top 10 scorer in the league for sure. So anyway, that was great, Brian. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That was not just a test of your fantasy hockey medal, but your stamina yeah, as man. well. We have, we have passed the 60-minute mark. I've got to let you go at this point. It would be unfair otherwise. Uh, but thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise and, and having this conversation with us today. Neil, if people want more Neil Parker, where can they get it? You can find me around uh, writing about fantasy sports on Twitter. I'm at na parker 77 and dauber hockey here for the next few weeks and then rotowire.com and i'm always uh popping up in other places and other things happening so definitely uh keep an eye out and brian why don't we uh try to schedule a a mid-season catch-up or something and we can go back over this stuff that would be great and potentially embarrassing yes (laughs) if it's not going to be embarrassing thumbs up if it is uh we'll talk about it sounds good that's awesome thanks a lot i really appreciate it awesome neil parker everybody give him a follow on twitter and again you can catch him on places you just saw thanks so much for joining us on the show 